Managing your law practice can be challenging. Marketing, time management, attracting clients, and all the things besides the cases that you need to do that aren't billable. Welcome to this edition of the Unbillable Hour, the Law Practice Advisory Podcast. This is where you'll get the information you need from expert guests and host attorney Rodney Dowell here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the Unbillable Hour, the Law Practice Advisory Podcast, helping attorneys improve their practice. We're glad you could listen today on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Rodney Dow, Executive Director of the Massachusetts Lawyers Concern for Lawyers and Director of LCL's Massachusetts Law Office Management Program. Improving the lives of attorneys by offering free and confidential help for Massachusetts attorneys on issues ranging from depression and addiction to how to improve their business practices. For more information, visit www.lclma.org and www.massloomap.org. I'd like to take this time to thank our sponsor, PC Law by LexisNexis. For more information, go to pclaw.com backslash radio. The beginning of every new year sets the stage for a new focus for improving our practice management policies and procedures. I want to start this year with a focus on computer security because, as noted by our guest today, law firms are increasingly being targeted by hackers seeking to access confidential business and personal information. If hackers are successful, the law firm will be left with a terrible black eye, loss of client confidence, and, if not handled properly, potentially significant monetary damages. Our guests, John Simic and attorney Sharon Nelson, are the president and vice president of Sensei Enterprises, Inc., a legal technology information security and computer forensics firm based in Fairfax, Virginia. They also write and speak on the topic of information security throughout the country, including at the upcoming ABA Tech Show in Chicago, and uh, you should definitely plan on getting out there to see them there. John and Sharon, I appreciate you taking the time to join us today. I'm excited to have you on. Well, thank you very much, Rodney. We appreciate the invitation. Yeah, oh, thank you much. Always, when I talk about having experts on, you two, I think, are uh, the perfect example of the experts we try to get on. Uh, but and going back to one of the points I was talking about above is how do you know that attorneys are being targeted, Sharon? Well, we were always pretty sure that attorneys were being targeted, but they're very tight-lipped about this. I mean, you can understand they don't want any kind of data breach getting out of the law firm. So we really didn't have very firm information until 2009 when the FBI issued an advisory specifically mentioning that hackers were targeting law firms, particularly mergers and acquisition firms and IP firms. Uh, last year, we talked to Rob Lee from Mandiant uh, Security, and he told us and confirmed that 10% of Mandiant's business now involves the investigation of data breaches at law firms. So that was pretty startling. And then we had our first reported, publicly reported breach last year, a Maryland law firm where some poor lady who was supposed to bring home the backup drive, the backup hard drive uh, every night was on the light rail in Baltimore, and she left the drive on the light 
light rail, and she, even though she went back just a few minutes later, it was gone, and the data was was unencrypted, and there was some health data on there. So that was the first publicly reported one. We've also lectured with Matt Kesner, a friend from California. He is the information security director for Fenwick and West, uh, a California firm, and he will acknowledge that they've had two data breaches, not super serious ones. They were website data breaches, but he also knows of others in the industry who have had them. It's just that people don't want to acknowledge them, and they they do keep it very close to the vest. So let me talk for a minute, Rodney, about the kinds of targeting. One kind of targeting is very specific. It's spear targeting. They're looking for a specific lawyer or a law firm, In some cases, in fact, in a good many cases, China has been the source of the hacking. We had one firm who had a case against a Chinese corporation, Dodge a Bullet, because they had trained their lawyers so well that when some emails showed up with attachments, even though it looked like the emails were coming from other people in the firm, they were skeptical and they passed it on to their security department so they didn't have any of the malware installed. But in many cases, if people really want to get into a particular law firm, they're going to do it. I mean, we're just not that sophisticated in most cases. And even a little tiny firm can have a big case. And it's not just a question of state-sponsored hacking, as in China. There's also just pure business espionage, where you have a case that someone else in America might be interested in. Um, As a funny aside to the the Chinese part of the equation, it's said that they don't even use their their A-teams. They don't bother to bring in their A-teams of hackers, because the rookie C-squads are good enough to get into the American (laughs) law firms. Um, Um, (laughs) And then the other kind of targeting is more general. And these are usually identity thieves. As an example, just one example, take a small family law firm. They hold all kinds of financial and personal information. But in any area of law, there's information that could be useful to hackers who also want to do do identity theft. There are many reasons for, for getting in, but they want your data. Make no mistake about it. Well, it certainly sounds like uh, that. Uh, I mean, this is a serious uh, problem. And John, how how do these data breaches happen? I mean, besides just you know the person leaving the hard drive, backup hard drive on the light rail. <laughs> yeah, that that was a pretty bad one. But as as Sharon said, it's it's probably one of the most common things are malware infections or uh, you know zero day attacks. Where what a zero day is 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 that that definition varies among some folks, but generally it's when and your security, your antivirus, or your uh, security software isn't equipped to handle a particular vulnerability. Um, Adobe, quite frankly, has, has a lot of these uh, and has had a lot over the years. But that's really primarily how, how folks get compromised is they're going to websites they shouldn't be going to. They're clicking on links they shouldn't be clicking on in web pages. Um, they're Opening up attachments, you know, as, as, as Sharon said, that, that in that one particular case where they've, they've received these things, uh, even uh, recently, if you recall the, um, uh, the RSA, where the, the, the two-factor tokens, you know, the, the numbers that change all the time. Um, right. The, when they got, how that occurred was it was an Excel spreadsheet that one of their security folks, actually, who should have known better, opened up that attachment because it looked like it came from someone that he knew. And embedded within them, within there was a zero day flash exploit. So it was a wrapper around a vulnerability. So, that, and that was a, a a a piece of software that was actually included or wrapped around an Excel file sheet. Is that well? It, it was a it was a piece of malware that uh-huh. uh, that 
compromised uh, a vulnerability in Flash, okay. but it was Im- it was embedded within an Excel spreadsheet. Wow! So he didn't even know that he was doing a Flash thing. He just opened up a spreadsheet. <laughs> right, and now that's I mean it seems to me like that's really interesting and and awfully scary and. How uh, and I, I want to um, I want to get to some other issues about malpractice and ethics. But to me, what this really brings up is a question of I mean, uh, talking about training your people to recognize. And Sharon, you'd mentioned earlier, you know, that these attorneys had been trained well enough that they recognized that these attachments within their law firm, emails within their law firm, had not been um, you know were not appropriate to open. What kind of training do we need to provide to to attorneys and staff in a in a law firm? I, I think you need yearly training at the very least. So you you've got to get everybody together in, in a room, sit them down when they're awake at breakfast time or something, <laughs> give them food, um, and then you need to go through the then current things that we're seeing in information security. So you need to go through suspicious attachments. Were you expecting an email from this person? Where are you traveling on the internet? You know, there are places you know that are okay. There are places that are not okay. What if you get some kind of pop-up? What do you do? And over and over and over again, you should be triggering in their minds the idea that anything that seems the remote little bit suspect should go to their security folks for, for exploration before they do anything with it. One of the things I'm sure you've seen, Rodney, I think everybody has is those emails from the Better Business Bureau that aren't from the Better Business Bureau telling you that you have a complaint against you. And I know my office manager said, oh, uh, you know, you better look at this. We've got some kind of complaint against us. And I laughed and I said, no, 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 no. This is just a, a phishing attempt. There, there's there's no complaint. We don't even belong to the Better Business Bureau. So, But you do have to continue to train them on everything we now know and what we know changes every day. Well, I, th- I think that's a good example as well, because uh, as time goes on, these folks are smarter and smarter and better and better. That that particular Better Business Bureau uh, email, the information that's contained within there is very specific. I mean, it had our company name, it had the right address, it had the right phone numbers. A lot of the data that is contained within there is accurate. Absolutely. And I mean, I have to say, like, even though I try to think about this stuff all, every, all the time when I'm looking at emails, I know that I've come close to opening up uh, emails before. I mean, some of them are just very enticing for one reason or another. <laughs> so, but uh, going back to the trading issue, if, I mean, you know, while I try to stay on top of this, I'm probably not the ideal person to to go in and train my staff on, on uh, what to what look for and stuff. What, who would you suggest that law firms, uh, you know, look to and, and have come in or can you do it by web? You, you could. If they have uh, an information security department, that's a larger law firm, of course, than that uh-huh. person is the appropriate person. In a smaller firm, you'd actually have people that are like John and I come in, and that's what they do. Law firms locally have had us come in and we present. Usually it's an hour and a half or so, and we'll go through the then current vulnerabilities and things they need to watch out for. Uh, and that's how they handle it. And of course, we all also tie it into the, the ethics rules. Is, is this a good point to talk about that? Well, absolutely. <laughs> Please do. Yeah. Well, the, the, the number one, of course, is rule 1.6. They need to keep their client's data confidential. They, they kind of get the fact that there's a connection between that and information security, but because they don't understand technology, you kind of have to draw the, you know, connect the dots for them. And, and it is expensive. And, and small firms, particularly, they don't have a lot of money to spend on this stuff, but they have to spend some amount of money. 
there's no silver bullet either, which we're always telling them. So even though you make a good faith effort, you're never going to have a hundred percent guarantee that you can't have something terrible happen to you. And in that case, you've got kind of a bridge the gap. And as, as risk management, you might want to consider cyber insurance because typically your regular insurance policies are not going to cover a data breach. And most lawyers don't understand that either. So they need to take a look at their policies and see if they need to get some sort of a rider. Um, you also need to tell them that vigilance never stops, that you can't take a single class, a single CLE, and think that you're done. You have to take, I would say, at least one information security class per year, because I can tell you that every time we go out and lecture on this stuff, our PowerPoint has changed because things just happen so quickly. In fact, just today, five minutes before I got on this podcast, the ABA Journal had just published in its daily bulletin a report that video conferencing equipment that's set up outside of firewalls can be hacked. And there is a demonstration that was apparently done for the New York Times. So, I mean, that's just today. So <laughs> tomorrow it'll be something else. Uh, and I think that we also need to mention that Rule 1.1, the rule of competence, applies as well. If you're going to live in the digital world, then you're going to have to know more about it. So far, and I know this is one of the questions you had uh, asked me in advance, Rodney, yeah. that everybody and his brother who's had a famous data breach has been sued, but no law firm that I'm aware of has, has yet reported a lawsuit. But man, it is, it is only a matter of, of time. And one of the things I wanted to mention just as an interesting factoid is that we're seeing more and more RFPs, requests for proposals, asking firms about their information security, asking if they've had an independent audit and wanting to see that audit report. That shows you how much the clients are focused on it. Wow, that's that's really something. And, and just uh, emphasizing how important I think this is. I mean, I know here in Massachusetts, we have uh, a statute, you know, it's only about a year old, the Massachusetts Data Privacy Statute, which if, if there's a breach uh, of personal information, you have to notify both the AG's office and the clients. And I would hate to be the, the law firm that had to do that. You have, you have some uh, encryption requirements there too, Rodney. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously that's something, and I'd like to talk about that a little bit later, you know, that's just really overwhelms a lot of the small uh, firm attorneys. But, John, before we turn that, uh, what I'd like to ask you is, and I know you have some rather strong thoughts about this, but, you know, I talk to a lot of attorneys and they're saying, I'm going to go to the Mac based uh, uh, computers because they don't get viruses and they're more secure, you know, in, in addition to being maybe more intuitive. What's your thoughts about the security of the a Apple uh, products? Well, they're, they're, they're a Unix-based environment, the, and we're talking about the Macs specifically now, um, right. and then that, that operating system, but they are not immune to malware attacks, et cetera. They just happen to be less targeted because their market share is not as great as, as the Windows world is. So where are these guys going to go? They're going to go where the money is. They're going to go where the volume is. And that's, that's the Windows environment. Um, but Macintoshes, in fact, do have uh, security issues. There's, uh, they do receive patches. There's upgrades, et cetera. Apple, you know, generates those just like Microsoft generates them and, and they should be patched, patched as well. Uh, for the, for the Mac platform, you're now beginning to see some of the security vendors, the McAfee's of the world, the, the trend micros, the semantics, et cetera, coming out with Macintosh specific products. Um, they can do that for the Mac line. Now the iPhone's a different beast. The iPhone is an iOS based. 
operating system. Um, that uh, Apple will not let you get anywhere near the operating system kernel of that. So as a result, we really don't have any security products for the iPhone slash iPad, anything that runs an iOS uh, operating system on it. Uh, we have some that say they claim they, they do. They're, they're called security packages. But if you look at what they actually do, they do things as, okay, we'll scan after the fact. Um, we'll check whether or not this particular URL you're about ready to click on is in, in our bad boy database. But they don't really offer any real-time uh protection for the iOS devices. Uh, but, but at the end of the day, uh, having the, the I, I call an excuse to, to uh -huh. go to the, to, to the Apple platform because they are virus slash infection free. I mean, you're on another planet if you believe that. <laughs> it, it seems to me like it's just, as you said earlier, it's a matter of kind of a smaller market share. So it's not likely that they're going to one uh, be attacked as often, or there's going to be as likelihood that you're going to get a a product that's going to be cross-platform and hit both the Windows and a Mac. Is that fair? You think that, that that's fair? And, yeah. Uh, because there there is there just isn't the the market share there yet. Uh, yeah. If if something you know changes in that that air arena, then people are going to attack it. There are there have been discovered, in fact. Mac specific Trojans, uh, they just don't get a lot of press and they don't get distributed a lot because there's Apple. Apple's done one very good thing, in in my opinion. They don't run at a high privilege level by default. Uh huh. So when you first fire this bad boy up, um, you don't need you create your ID, but your ID runs at a lower privilege level. So if something tries to attack the operating system or the application, it something's going to pop up and say, wait a minute, you know, if the thing you're trying to do requires administrative rights. So give me the administrative credentials. That's a good yeah. thing. Um, a lot of the Windows platforms, folks don't like to be bothered with that. Now, Windows 7 is a different beast. <laughs> they, they, Windows 7 took the same approach that Apple took in, you know, running at a lower privilege level. But previously, a lot of folks, they just want to, hey, I don't want to sit there and keep clicking things. I want to install. Let me run. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely. I have the hardest time Yeah, getting people to even put a password onto things. It's, yeah. it's crazy. Yeah. So, that, so that, makes a, that makes a Windows platform a lot more vulnerable, if for no other reason, because a lot of folks are running at the administrator level. Right, right. Well, listen, it's time for a quick break and a word from our sponsor, PC Law by LexisNexis. Tired of all the headaches of running your law firm? Want to spend your time doing what really matters? Then you need PC Law. PC Law from LexisNexis is the legal industry's best-selling matter, billing, and accounting software. It has never been easier to manage your law firm and serve your clients. Get back to doing what matters to you. For a free trial, go to PCLaw.com slash radio. That's PCLaw.com slash radio. Or call us at 800-685-2161 today. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at LegalTalkNetwork.com. You never have enough friends or followers, right? Check out Legal Talk Network on Facebook and Twitter, LinkedIn too.
Welcome back to the Unbillable Hour on Legal Talk Network. I'm Rodney Dowd, joined by John Simic and Sharon Nelson of Sensei Enterprises, Inc., a legal information security and computer forensic firm. I, you know, I think I could spend the rest of the uh, time talking about Android and mobile uh, and Apple mobile devices, but I think I should step back and 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 talk a little bit more about um, some of the things I I'd mentioned to you before we went on air. Which is, can you guys can and I don't care uh, Sharon or John, uh, whoever wants to take this, uh, talk about some easy or easier security measures that every law firm should put into place, and maybe you know some that. That uh, sound real difficult, but maybe they could actually do without having a computer uh, science degree. Well, I'll start. I'll do the easy ones because that's right. what I'm qualified to do. And we'll <laughs> give John the hard ones. Sounds great. <laughs> in, in the easy realm, they should have policies because the policies will help people understand what to do. And that's one of those things you can train on all the time. And you'd be shocked how many policies you need that are related to information security. For instance, these days, you need a remote access policy. You need an incident response plan in case you do have a breach. You need an employee termination policy so that you make sure that you cut all that employee's uh, access to everything in the network. You need a disaster recovery plan, a litigation hold plan, uh, email and internet usage plan, and mobile device policies. Uh, you just can't throw all those bring-your-own-device devices into a firm without some kind of management by policy and through equipment such as mobile device managers, and John might talk about that a little bit more later. You okay. also need to make sure, and this is one of the most common reasons we have data breaches, you need to patch. You need to make sure that your patching is always current and people don't do it. I don't know why they don't do it, but that's constantly one of the two big reasons why people get in. You also need these days enterprise security software. In the old days, we used to find not just, uh, we, we would find just an antivirus package and worse yet, it would be one that hadn't been renewed, so it's not running anymore. <laughs> um, but, but these days, with the enterprise security software, they will protect also against all kinds of malware including spyware and phishing attacks. Um, and two of our favorites, which your listeners might be interested in, are Trend Micro and Kaspersky, both of which we use, and we like those a lot. Um, Great. A, a, another good tip is not to use software that's no longer supported so that there aren't any more security fixes. And lawyers tend to be enamored of software that's worked well for them forever and they don't want to learn the new one or they can't afford the new software so they don't upgrade. But if there are no security fixes, you're in trouble. And then you mentioned passwords, Rodney, which now these days the Georgia Institute of Technology study has proven to us that you need to have 12-character passwords. An 8-character password can be broken in under two hours. So wow. 12 characters are mandatory. Um, alphanumeric, you should change them regularly. You should use a passphrase, something like, I love Rodney Dowell, <laughs> with an exclamation point, of course, so that you can re you can remember it. Different passwords for different things, so that if one is compromised, they're not all compromised. And don't do something stupid. In the top 10 passwords, the top 10 dumb passwords, we see every year, we see 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and QWERTY, which is the top six letters on the, the keyboard. I mean, you know, are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, yeah. John, you want to tell them about some of the, the I know you like to talk about encryption. Um, yeah, a little bit on that, but a little before we go and, and talk about that, passwords as well. I know 12 sounds like a lot and it's, it's burdensome, cumbersome, et cetera. Um, so it's the things that we tell folks are use a password manager so that you only have to remember one real strong password, but there's a quote vault 
that holds all of your other passwords. And that well, lets you then change, you know, to for different sites, et cetera. I really appreciate you mentioning it because that was the thing that immediately came up uh, when, uh, as we were having that discussion, is whether you know something like LastPass or, or one of these other password managers was something that you guys thought was an acceptable thing to use. Oh sure, yeah, they yeah. they um, they encrypt the, the data. So it's secure. Uh, I personally, I use two things. I use an, an iron key flash drive, a USB drive. The iron key has an application, a password manager application on it itself. So it's all contained there. It's all encrypted, et cetera. But I also use um, a product called eWallet. And, and it's not that much money. I want to say it's 20 bucks or something like that. Uh, but it, the, the nice part about eWallet is that not only does it save the passwords in an encrypted form, but it synchronizes to your smartphone. So they, they'll synchronize to a BlackBerry, to an Android, to an iPhone. So you can also carry that around then in an encrypted form on your, you know, your hip or your purse or whatever you've got, but, but it contains in the smartphone as well. Oh, that's great. So, but, but that whole password management concept, you know, Sharon talked about MDMs, the mobile device managers. We're seeing more and more stuff now at the, at the smartphone level. So, you know, it's not just your computers. You need to, you know, uh, secure your, your smartphone devices, you know, as well. But some of the simple things I think that lawyers can do uh, from a security perspective are, you know, metadata and, and stripping metadata. Make sure that you review that stuff and you're not sending out any confidential information uh, on that. And, and understand what it is and how to do it. And there are a lot of great products out there that, that will strip that automatically. We like Metadata Assistant uh, ourselves. It, it attaches into Outlook, and so it'll automatically warn you when you're sending an attachment out, hey, hey, did, do you want to clean this or not? Things like that. Uh, you know, be careful of your email transmissions, the reply all, which can get you in trouble, <laughs> uh, the, the BCCs, the, those kinds of things. And there are products out there that'll, that'll trap and warn you of that too. Yeah, Oh, that's a great list of uh, of products. Uh, and before I, I know we're kind of running close on time here, but one thing I would like you to mention uh, before we have to wrap up is just this whole issue of encryption. I find a lot of attorneys don't really know what I'm talking about when I talk about encryption, or you know, and how easy or difficult it is to actually start using encryption on their electronic data. John, I'm going to let you take that, but I want to just mention that there is kind of the Peter Pan approach to that. And in uh -huh. the same way that Peter Pan said, I won't grow up, I won't grow up, I won't grow up. <laughs> attorneys say, I won't learn encryption, I won't learn encryption, I won't learn encryption. And, oh, and so that's been almost a universal. Yeah, well, it's, it's really not difficult at all. I mean, and there's lots and lots of choices for you. Um, to make it really simple for folks, encrypt everything. Encrypt the whole thing. So if you're talking about a computer, encrypt the entire hard drive. If you're talking about a flash drive, encrypt the entire flash drive, those little USB sticks, etc. cetera. Uh, from a product perspective, and why that makes it, why whole, what's called whole, whole disk encryption is the preferred way to go is because the uh, you don't have to think or remember where you're putting your data. If you don't do whole disk encryption, then you have to remember should it be the F drive or the K drive or whatever? That's the encrypted volume. So I need to make sure data is always there. If the entire drive is encrypted, you, no matter where you store it, you know it's safe. But TrueCrypt, uh, which is an open source product, is free. Uh, the, the downside to that is um, it's, there's no tech support for it. So if you're kind of a little goosey about doing whole disk encryption and you'd really want to have that, that 
that warm Linus blanket with you, <laughs> then, then buy a commercial product. Um, PGP is still available. Semantic now purchased them. There's, there's lots of products out there. Um, uh, what, what are some of them, Sharon? I'm, I'm drive Crypt. Drive, drive, drive Crypt is one of them. Um, there's a Guardian. I can't remember what the, the beginning of it is. Uh, uh, encryption package, but what, and they're not that expensive, seventy to a hundred dollars uh, in in that range. They'll also encrypt the flash drives. But the advantage to that is, when you purchase a commercial product, you get tech support. So now you've got that warm fuzzy blanket. If you're not sure of what you're doing, then you know somebody uh, actually can help you. Is that the PC Guardian, John? PC Guardian. That's it. Yep. Yeah. Right. Well, that's that's great. Let me just ask one last question. Um, before we have to go, and that is, the attorney, many attorneys that I that I work with seem to also think that just because they're attorneys, they are experts at everything, and so you know they want to they want to do everything regardless of the amount of time that it takes or their expertise. What piece of security, like uh, you know, action would you say you have to leave this to a security expert? And go out and spend the money to get a you know qualified expert. I, I think that a lot of times they're very confused about the difference between their IT support and information security experts. Those are not the same thing. You uh-huh. can have an IT person who sets up your technology according to you know good practices, et cetera, et cetera. That does not make that person an information security expert. That's that's a different expertise. So they need to understand that difference. And then they need to realize how very expensive it is to, when you have a data breach, the first thing you got to do is investigate. You've got to stop the breach. You've got to remediate whatever caused the breach. And then you've got to abide by 46 state laws uh, that have to do with notification. It's extremely expensive. So it is far less expensive to hire somebody who is an information security expert and at least once a year have your systems checked and remediate your problems. That That's a lot cheaper. And no attorney is unless you're really a, a rabid technologist, is is going to be uh, able all by themselves to make sure their systems are secure. Do you agree, John? Yeah, but you also want to be, you know, if you do it yourself, then you have a vested interest. It's like, you know, calling yourself as your own witness. <laughs> that, <laughs> that's probably not a good idea. But some of the more difficult things, and, and you want to trust a third party doing these things, are like the the vulnerability testing or vulnerability assessments. Uh, that's uh-huh. probably the best thing that folks can do. They, they, someone can come in and identify and then, as Sharon said, give you what the steps would be to remediate. Penetration testing generally is not really needed. It is certainly a, a skill set that's, uh, you know, left outs- outside or should be outsourced. But it's still um, most, unless you're a larger firm, you don't really require, you know, penetration testing. Vulnerability assessments, I think, are probably the really the, the entry level minimum that, that a lot of law firms ought to be doing. Well, that's great. That wraps up this edition of the Unbillable Hour, the Law Practice Advisory Podcast. Very special thanks to our guests for joining us today, John and Sharon. Really appreciate your thoughts and experience uh, regarding this issue of data security. That was a really informative uh, podcast, and I I truly uh, appreciate you taking the time uh, to join us today. Can you uh, tell us where our listeners should go to if they want to find out more about you and Sensei Enterprises? Sure, and, and we certainly want to thank you, Ronnie, for inviting us. We enjoyed being with you. Uh, our website is www.se. 
N-S-E-I-E-N-T dot com. I can't believe I had to pause to think about it. And our phone number is 703-359-0700. And of course, our emails are available on the website. So thank you very much again. Yes, thank you much. Thank you. All right. You can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetworks.com or in iTunes. Please feel free to continue this discussion on Twitter where you can find me at Rodney Dow. And I hope you'll join us again on the next on Billable Hour, the Law Practice Advisory Podcast. Thank you. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network. Its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to the Unbillable Hour, the Law Practice Advisory Podcast with Attorney Rodney Dowell. Join us again for the next edition right here on the Legal Talk Network. Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, these immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology, allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu slash interactive or download PLI's mobile app.